Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor at McMaster University, a historian of AI, and the director of admissions for the Interact Fellowship. Today, I'm speaking with Nadia Egbal, a writer, researcher, and the author of Working in Public, The Making and Maintenance of Open Source Software, published by Stripe Press. This book is a deep dive into a culture that many of us outside the software industry are unfamiliar with, the world of developers who work tirelessly, often for very little reward or compensation, to maintain the web protocols, programming languages, and code libraries that keep all of our digital lives afloat. I learned a great deal reading this book, and it gave me a newfound appreciation for the unsung people and communities who maintain digital infrastructure. Nadia, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start by asking you if you could quickly summarize your work, how you view yourself as a researcher and writer, and how you specifically got interested in this question of open source. Sure. So the time that I spent looking at open source developers was about a five-year period Um, And I guess throughout this process, I thought of and continue to think of myself as an independent researcher, um, meaning that I wasn't affiliated with any particular academic institution. I didn't really have any mandate other than my own curiosity. Um, And I basically just kind of started out um, being someone who is already working in tech and growing curious about how our software was made and um, where it all comes from, uh, not just the developers that work at the companies that provide the apps that you might know of, but um, this sort of underlying layer of infrastructure of free and public code that gets traded around freely between different developers. Um, And so I just started having those conversations by reaching out, um, cold emailing software developers, trying to listen and understand their story. And uh, over the course of those conversations, just um, felt like there was this unexplored, untold story about uh, all of this software infrastructure that most people don't think that much about, even in tech, um, that I wanted to write more about and, and share more stories about. Um, and so I did I did that sort of with an open mandate um, in the beginning with a grant from the Ford Foundation, um, publishing a report called Roads and Bridges, the Un- Unseen Labor um, Behind Our Digital Infrastructure, and just making the case that um, all of these open source projects and these developers are um, together form uh, infrastructure just like the roads and bridges of our physical world that um, might be just like unnoticed by most of us, even as we come to rely more and more on our digital world. Um, and right. then I spent a little bit of time uh, working more directly with developers at this company called GitHub, which is the platform that a lot of developers use. Um, and then I went back to research and um, writing this book. So it was a circuitous sort of journey, um, trying to learn as much as I could through a lot of different avenues that led to producing this book. Yeah, it's fantastic. Well, the book is um, almost anthropological or ethnographic, you kind of embed yourself in this community 
uh, of developers and open source software maintainers. When you wrote the book, were you thinking about it through that lens of trying to write kind of uh, the study of this community from an anthropological perspective? Yes, definitely. I was heavily influenced by the likes of um, soft, uh, Stuart Brand, uh, Eleanor Ostrom, Jane Jacobs, um, Don Norman. Uh, all of these authors had written these landmark books about totally different areas and uh, not all even related to software directly. Um, but I think what united me about um, learning from these authors was that they they all just took time to sit and observe and uh, listen to real stories on the ground and try to ignore the pre-existing notions of, um, say, like in Jane Jacobs' example, um, of understanding like what a city is supposed to be or what urban planners were saying. She just went out and like looked at her street and like stepped outside and looked around and wrote about what she saw. And so I was trying to take a similar kind of approach with writing this book of um, there's a ton of literature out there already about software developers, but I always felt like they were kind of missing this human side and this human story. Um, and so I really tried to ground my work in blog posts and tweets and conversations and just mm. like uh, the the things that I was gaining firsthand and, um, and just try to tell that story. Yeah. And you tell it absolutely masterfully with a lot of fantastic quotes, which are in the book in the, in the physical book itself are kind of the quotes are kind of written in block form in red. They stand out nice and wonderfully. So you can really, you're kind of, it, it really gives this sense of you highlighting kind of the, the words verbatim of many of the people uh, who you're profiling at through your research, which I really appreciated. Before we talk about uh, these people and these communities, we probably have to get some scaffolding in place because, like I said, for many of us, this world of software development is pretty unfamiliar to those of us who maybe aren't computer scientists or engineers. So we're going to have to start with just some definitions and maybe terminology. Uh, your book has open source in the subtitle, I guess, what does it mean for code or software, this is a big question, to be open source? So the term open source, uh, in its most literal definition, just refers to the license um, that explains how software or any piece of code might be used. Um, and so open source basically just says that anybody is uh, free to modify or use or um, uh inspect the uh so anyone else's code that has this license on it um so in its simplest terms open source just means that um if you come across a piece of code that is open source you can use it yourself for depending on the license but let's just say broadly um basically anything you want and so um the the joy of this means that any developer can write and publish code online um a lot of them upload that code to github um and anyone else can discover that code and then put it in their own software. And so this is true, not just for hobbyist developers that are sharing code around, which is kind of how things started. But now at mm -hmm. this point, every single major software company, um, and not just in tech, but um, banks, hospitals, uh, uh and anyone you can think of, um, if, if you, you know, open anything on your phone, on your laptop, it's using open source software. It is probably mostly comprised of open source software. Um, so like an, an app developer at Facebook, um, in order to make the app that you might use, uh, they're writing some code on top of it, but uh, your average Facebook software developer is also relying on, let's say, you know, 90% of uh, this free and public code that is shared around by anyone. 
Yeah, incredible. So just <laughs> these repositories of code, you mentioned the website GitHub. Can you say a bit more about what GitHub is and maybe a brief introduction of how it works as kind of the central storage hub for so much of this software? Yeah. So um, GitHub is the main tool that uh, a lot of software developers use to uh, share and uh, download and collaborate on code. So you might think of it like, um, well, I guess you could you could compare it at its highest level to a social platform. So um, mm-hmm. on Facebook or Twitter or wherever, you can um, view other people's stuff that they've shared and uh, and consume it. And so it's similar to that where any developer can upload their own code and anyone else, if they choose to make that public and license it, um, anyone can also take that code and use it for whatever they want. And you don't even know who some of those people are. Sometimes anyone can kind of just come across your code and download it. Um, but it's also a tool in the sense that um, maybe closer to something like Google Docs, where you can also collaborate on code together. So if I publish a piece of code, I can have it be visible to everybody, but then I can also say, um, it, I will accept contributions or, and changes to this code. So it's like if I had made a Google Doc public and said, if you want to change or modify that, um, you're welcome to. I guess maybe like Wikipedia is a closer example here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, similarly, any anyone can... Uh, make contributions back to your code if you choose to accept them. And so it has this aspect of being both a social platform, but also a a tool and a service. Right. And so we've got these, you know, repositories of software hosted on GitHub. Who are the people in charge of, um, I guess, maintaining those things versus you mentioned people, anyone can access those things and then make changes. How does that process of, you know, anyone out in the world um, wanting who wants to make change to open source software, how does that process actually work? So this is where it's probably a little bit closer to compare it to Google Docs over Wikipedia. Um, so on Wikipedia, if you wanted to edit a Wikipedia article, literally anybody can just make that change if they want to. Um, there's no one... You, it can be disputed by other contributors and maybe they'll make a change, make you change it back. But um, there's no final permission that's required in order to make that change. Um, whereas you can imagine if you use Google Docs and you can um, do this thing where you track or suggest changes. And so I might highlight a sentence and delete it. And then this little thing pops up on Google Docs that says, you know, Nadia deleted this sentence. And then you, who's the owner of the document, has to decide whether you want to approve or reject that change. And so it's the same concept with code where um, your code might just be totally available and someone takes a piece of it and then says, I actually want to change this. And they propose that change to you. Um, And then that comes in the form of a pull request. And so a pull request is basically just a proposal to change that aspect of the code. And then um, the person who owns that code or maintains it has to look at that and decide whether they want to um, approve or deny that request. And so uh, you can imagine that this starts to become a bit of a bottleneck. It's as if you did have that for, imagine for Wikipedia articles where um, there's you know one or two owners of a Wikipedia article, but then gosh, <laughs> you know, who knows how many uh, maybe like thousands or millions of people that want to change that article. And suddenly like one person has to review all of those changes and decide whether to accept them or not. Hmm. And so you can kind of start to see where those challenges start to form in open source, where um, someone still has to review all of those changes and it starts to become a little bit more of that bottleneck. Am I correct in thinking that your kind of initial interest in this question of open source was from seeing that, that bottleneck in action and thinking about, 
you know, what can be done to solve that problem? Is that kind of what you, got you interested in, in some of these issues? Definitely. Um, because I think open source is often compared to Wikipedia as an example. Um, and the rhetoric that I had, I mean, open source has been around for 20 years or more, depending on how you want to define it. Um, and so, you know, I, it had existed long before I started looking into it, but I felt like the story around open source up to that point um, was largely focused around this potential for collaboration, which is enormous. Um, don't get me wrong. Um, and every open source project sees that and, and can benefit from it. Uh, but I felt like the picture that was being painted was this very rosy thing where you can just imagine, you know, hundreds of strangers um, who are all software developers around the world who are just sort of like happily collaborating on um, on these code repositories together. Uh, whereas I was finding that for some projects, there might just be like one person who is this, you know, bottleneck or this maintainer um, who's just receiving tons of contributions from people, but it's not really a community. It's more like there's one person who's facing this audience or this stage of um, hundreds or thousands of other software developers and uh, and is basically just f uh, faced with like handling that amount of volume coming at them personally. And I felt like that didn't really fit into the story of were this, you know, group of, uh, you know, ragtag team of developers who were hmm. just sort of like working on this and rolling up our sleeves and collaborating together. It was more like right. one person was at the center of it all. And I wanted to understand why that, uh, why that was true. Right. I, definitely one of my favorite parts in the book is when you kind of explain the social dynamics of what makes, you know, a pull request likely to be accepted by the maintainer and kind of all the, I don't know, the, just the little micro dynamics that, that arise in these settings was super interesting. But, but maybe before we get into that, I, I'd love to just give a sense of, um, this process, as you described it, code sitting on GitHub where people maintain these packages and people can uh, request to change them, but they're really free for anyone to access and use. How much of the code that exists in the world are we talking about? Is this just, um, uh, is this just the internet? Is this all of our sm smartphones? I mean, is it, is, are we fully reliant basically on processes like the open source ones you're describing for, for a huge chunk of the software that exists, uh, in the world? And, you know, if so, how should we be conceptualizing just how big of an impact this is having on the, on the digital world we all live in? Yeah, gosh, it's really hard to conceptualize. Um, one of the one of the reasons why I think this space has gone rather overlooked over the years is because there aren't really any clear numbers for these things. Um, like a developer who puts up their own code, uh, it could that code could become very very widely used by millions of people, and that developer would actually have no idea unless someone told them that. And, and I have a few stories in the book of that happening to developers. Where they're like, "Oh, I had no idea. All these people <laughs> were suddenly using and relying on my software. Like, right. oh gosh, I guess I have this responsibility to everyone now." Um, and so it is really hard to conceptualize. But uh, and it also just depends what type of software we're talking about. But I mean, I would say for any given you know software application or uh, web page or anything you're looking at, I, it it would not be unreasonable to say anywhere from like two thirds to, you know, 95% of that code is just open source software. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. It's, it's, it's pretty inconceivable just to, just to reckon with how embedded this is with our um, digital lives. So maybe we can start with some history. Um, you, you profile really wonderfully the, the kind of hacker culture in which a lot of early uh, software development took place. 
what were the spaces where this kind of early open source movement originated and what kinds of people were working on it? Yeah. I mean, so I wasn't around then. So <laughs> I, 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 sometimes I wonder, I'm like, oh gosh, I wonder, you know, what version of history I'm getting from people uh, who share these stories, but the, the stories that I've been told and that uh, uh, other folks are familiar with, um, it does seem to have originated as a sort of counterculture early on. Um, and so you can imagine when software first became a thing, let's say seventies, eighties, um, it was just built by individual companies and it wasn't being shared. I mean, we didn't really have that much of like a commercial internet to speak of at that point. Um, and so if someone was selling you software that was really just made by the, whatever company sold that to you and the only developers working on it were, let's say, you know, the hundreds or the thousands of people employed at that company, um, everything was very siloed in that way. Um, and so there was this movement called the free software movement that started in the eighties, um, largely attributed to Richard Stallman, um, who had, uh, he was, uh, at MIT at the time and he, um, had a Xerox printer that he was really frustrated by because he couldn't, you know, see view or inspect the code. He wanted to do something with the Xerox printer and customize it to his own liking and was just frustrated by this idea of why can't I modify or hack on this Xerox printer because it belongs to Xerox and I'm not allowed to do that. And I have no ability to view or inspect that code. And so that was sort of the story that right. um, kicked off the early, early um, open source movement of these developers who were saying, well, it's really silly that if I can tinker on code, but that code lives in some company that I'm not allowed to see their code or use their code or inspect it. I just have to like buy it from them. And then um, they, there were people who I guess were really like do it yourselfers and, and wanted to be able to like get behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so that started pushing, um, pushing this ideological movement towards uh, being able to view and share and inspect each other's code. Um, that being said, it was still very much this, um, this like fringe or, countercultural kind of movement. Like most, most people just thought that was crazy because you have to, someone has to pay for software. Um, and there's this, uh, memorable, uh, clash between, um, and very young Bill Gates and these so-called hobbyist developers. And he characterizes huh. as, um, and he's very angry and writes this open letter. Um, so then when they, uh, when a copy of, um, his software got passed around, where he's just sort of like, you know, how how could you steal from a company like this? This is like someone has to pay for this code. It's not just something that you can just share around. But I mean, much like sharing books or any other type of information, code is just another type of knowledge, right? It's just, mm. um, and so similarly where it's, it's really hard to stop people from sharing books around. It's also really hard for people to stop sharing code around. Um, mm. And so those I ideological movements kind of um, characterize the early phase of it. Would you is there something of a anarchist or libertarian or anti-corporate, anti-government kind of trend to some of these guys who are kind of founding this this movement as you as you see it? Yeah, early on for sure. And there are still people like that who are upset at, say, GitHub being, you know, saying, why do we have one platform where um, everyone right. is expected to upload and host their code? I want to upload it anywhere. I want to have that that freedom to do what I want with my software. And um, and so there is this historically, I guess, this deep allergy to the idea that any one person might or entity or company um, could control what we do with code. There's a there's a quote that that you emphasize in the book from, I think, Richard Stallman, that code should be free as in freedom, not free as in beer. Um, 
that's a, that's a, a common phrase that you'll you'll hear tossed around in these settings. But maybe ruminating on that for a second, yeah, what actually does it mean for code to be freely available or free? Yeah, that um, so that line about free as in freedom, not free as in beer, is often repeated by these early um, free software hackers and. Um, and so the idea being that um, in, in Spanish, this is a clearer distinction between gratis and libre, um, which is also sometimes cited in, in free software circles. But uh, so you can have free as in something doesn't cost any money or you can have free as in um, speaking to this idea of liberty or or to a certain like right that you can hold. And so um, Stallman is making the argument that code itself needs to be liberated and free. Um, it's not about whether it costs zero dollars or not, but the code itself should just exist independently of any um, any one developer that chooses to uh, write or modify it. And so I guess despite the initial pushback of some of these fringe players, it seems that now it's it's certainly the norm. What, how did that become the case? Was it good business fundamentals to kind of adopt this open source approach or... Uh, yeah, what led to kind of it becoming the the default in some way? Yeah, so that was kind of like the first big rift in um, the history of free and open source software. And so it was a switch from free software over to open source software, which is a term that is now kind of stuck. Um, and so that came about around the end, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, which also probably not coincidentally has something to do with um, the rise of a lot of internet businesses. Um, and so there was a, within free software was and continues to be very ideologically driven. It's driven by this belief that code should be free as in liberated. Um, and in the book, I sort of compare that to, uh, or I, I mentioned some uh, free software activist who compares this to being a vegetarian where it's just like, I'm not going to consume software that does not meet those requirements. Uh, within that, in the late nineties, there was sort of this growing contingent of people that, um, that felt that that sort of positioning wasn't going to be palatable to say like companies that wanted to use it um, and trying to make a little bit more of this business case for why open source is good for everyone. And so uh, one of the prominent figures that rose around that time was Eric Raymond, who wrote this piece called the cathedral in the bazaar. And so he's trying to compare um, building software at a company is like building software in this cathedral where it's sort of locked up and you're not getting any benefits um, of other people reviewing your code or making it better. Um, and then he compares it to this idea of the bazaar and where he says um, code being this, you know, well, big babbling bazaar um, where anyone can contribute and you're getting all these sort of um, input and feedback from different people is, uh, he argues, a better way to do things um, because users can find bugs and they can report them to you, for example. Um, if you're a company and the only people who can inspect your code are the people that work at your company, then how are you going to you know, benefit from other people finding problems in your code? And so the, I, I would say the, ma- the big mantra of that time around the late 90s and early 2000s was it was all about openness. It was all about, you know, let as many people in as possible um, because it will just improve the quality of your code. And it's just like a better way to build software. And that was the argument that really appealed to um, a more mainstream audience because it was a little bit less about the ideological origins Um mm-hmm. We also see this rift in even just the licensing terms between software, where um, the uh, license that's more associated with free software is um, very opinionated about how it can be shared. 
And so if you want to use um, code that is licensed in that way, uh, you have to make anything that you put that code into also needs to have the same license, which is um, much more constraining. Uh, whereas um, the early open source advocates were pushing for um, more permissive licensing where they're just saying, look, just like let people do what they want to do with the code. It's more important that the code gets shared around than that, um, than that it maintains this sort of like ideological freedom. You mentioned the uh, very influential essay, The Cathedral and the Bazaar, which kind of contrast these two models of how code can be developed. One, I guess you've got this, you know, manager on the on the pulpit and this kind of audience of users. And then the other, we've kind of this got this communal, um, mutual organizing, uh, kind of much more idyllic and maybe more people's conception of what open source ought to be, where you kind of got these huge teams working collaboratively. But uh, as you kind of explain, we've moved in reality toward a situation that is much more like having one or a small group of maintainers who kind of work on the code uh, for a huge amount of time. And then this army of people who make very few um, often sometimes just one or two contributions kind of get their piece by using the code for what they need to and then never really participating um, uh, in that community. And um, I'm really, there's a, you, you have one quote where you say something like 80% of contributors don't know how to resolve a merge conflict. That is to say, a lot of these one-time contributors barely even know what they're doing at all. Um, is First of all, is that an accurate summary of the state of affairs for many major uh, open source uh, software uh, packages? And how does that kind of square with this idea of the bazaar as this communal venue for, for software development? Yeah. So the bazaar is sort of the backdrop upon which I was trying to pick up the next thread of conversation because I felt like most of what you will read about open source um, in books or articles on the internet um, mostly cover that free software movement and then that early open source movement. And then it seems like they kind of just like stopped and didn't revisit that because I think, you know, the story of openness is a really appealing one. And it's one that um, we really want to believe in, I guess, this idea that like everyone should be able to participate. Everyone should be able to have a voice in this conversation. And that makes the world better. It's really like this, um, you know, democratic ideal, right? Uh the reality of what happened as open source became more and more popular, um, because you also have to remember, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, open source was still not super, super widely used. Whereas now, as I've sort of characterized you, it's just the default. Um, and so what happened to open source is not that different from what happened to all of us on the Internet. And so um, we can sort of understand what happened in open source by just thinking about our own experience on the Internet where, hmm. you know, I, early on when there weren't that many people online and you were mostly just, you know, talking to your friends, talking to strangers was almost like frowned upon. Um, and huh. it, it, we just had a lot more context for those conversations. Right. But then as the, the size of the crowd increases, you start to lose that context. Hmm. And so then you kind of imagine the other extreme, um, you know, <laughs> the comment section of any article news article that you might read and imagine mm -hmm. if you had to collaborate on a project with those kinds of commenters everyone kind of reads those comments just like who are these people that are saying these things they're just being very mm -hmm. rude or saying ridiculous things um and so this this the state that a lot of open source developers found themselves in 
in adhering to this doctrine of openness was that they're suddenly saying, okay, everyone can participate. And then suddenly it's like, oh gosh, I have to, I have to collaborate with these people. Um, because you know, and it's not to, um, that's not a knock against like anyone specific, I guess. It's just the reality of what happens in crowds as we get to a certain size and a certain level of popularity. Um, you just kind of have to start drawing boundaries again. And, um, seeing that happen a little bit now with the social web where people are, I think a little bit there, there's this, um, parallel world developing where yes, we have Facebook and we have Instagram and we have Twitter and whatever, um, as these very, very public places. But then we're also starting to return to things like group chats and messaging and texting Mm. each other because we're, we miss having those like smaller group contacts. It's just a little too much to be facing these like enormous crowds. Um, and so that's kind of the, the point I want to identify for open source of, you know, does it make sense to continue embracing this openness doctrine when the world is clearly just not the same as it was 20 years ago? And so, uh, yes, there are still projects that do benefit from um, high openness and, and collaboration. And I sort of identify some of these different project types in the book. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to acknowledge that there is a very significant portion of projects today, open source projects today that uh, are, have more of what I call the stadium model, where it is just a couple right. people that are trying to like manage a very large and unwieldy audience of strangers and, and faces. Yeah, I think that um, the way you open the book by you kind of start by saying, you know, information, there's now just basically too much information and we're working with systems that were designed or advocated for during an era, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, where just the sheer quantity of people doing this stuff and sharing code was so much smaller than it is now and what might have worked then is now causing a lot of bottlenecks and issues as you describe it. I also really liked when you made a comparison um, at some point to maybe how Wikipedia works or how some other projects on the internet work where, you know, the top contributors to Wikipedia are contributing like millions and millions of edits. Just it's, it's practically their full-time jobs. And then most of the other, you know, you, you describe these long tails. That is to say the first few people, if you look at it on a graph are making these massive contributions. So they've got a high mark on the graph there. And then as you go through the subsequent people, that those people are contributing less and less until you get these long tails of tons of people who are barely contributing at all. And it was interesting to make that uh, kind of analogy between these, it seems like these natural dynamics that develop when you just get a lot of people and a lot of information and maybe projects that a few people are very passionate about, you, you, these, you kind of get, get these long tail distributions that you, that you had described. Definitely. Yeah. It's- While we're on the topic, you profile basically four different types of open source projects. So we've just, you just mentioned the stadiums. Um, which is kind of a few people, you know, speaking, quote unquote, to this large audience of users or contributors. But you have three others, uh, federations, clubs and toys. We can maybe set toys aside because that just seems like small little projects that a few people are working on, uh, maybe I don't know, hobbies. Um, but then you've got these two others, uh, other models, federations and clubs, in addition to the stadiums that you just described. Could you maybe go into those two models? Yeah. So this um, taxonomy sort of came from me trying to understand why is it that um, there, we just have so many different types of open source projects and we don't really have the vocabulary to, to describe 
when is this one type of open source project versus another and feeling like different projects had different paths for success and, and, and behavior. And so the, um, distinction that I started to hone in on was thinking just about a project's um, user growth and and then their contributor growth. And so users are just the people that are consuming um, whatever it is you're putting out there. So consuming the code that, that you're publishing. Um, contributors are the people that you might be potentially collaborating with and so actively participating and having to work with. And uh, so I started to look at projects based on these two axes of, do you have high or low user growth? Do you have high or low um, contributor growth? And so um, the the products that I feel get the most attention historically are these federations. So these are projects that have uh, high uh, user growth and high contributor growth. So it means they're wildly popular. Um used by lots and lots of people, but then they also have tons and tons of people who are contributing back. And um, those are the types of projects that do benefit from encouraging more people to contribute because they have the ability to um, absorb that. Uh, Then these other two that you you mentioned, the um, clubs and stadiums are a little bit different. So a a club has high contributor growth, um, but low user growth. And so you can think of that kind of like a hobbyist group or a meetup club. a project that has a little bit more of like a niche appeal. So it's never going to become super, super mainstream. Um, But there's just sort of like, you can imagine, I don't know, like a a happy crew of developers who are happy to roll up their sleeves and um, just like really love this project. And it's kind of for them, right? Like they're, Mm. they identify as like members of this project, whether they're using it or they're contributing it. Um, And then the third one that, that you mentioned um, stadiums is, a project that has high user growth, but then low contributor growth. Right. And that's sort of the the type of project that I think is um, becoming increasingly common in open source today, but also one that we don't really talk about very much. Mm-hmm. And so that's the sense of there is a very rapidly growing audience of people that are using and benefiting from your code, but then there aren't that many people contributing back for whatever reason. And I, I kind of try to identify um, some reasons why that might be the case in the book um, just to mention a couple of them, you know, it might just be that mm-hmm. the project is, um, doesn't ha- it is too technically complex for most people to contribute to, even if everybody needs it. So, um, secure, a lot, a lot of security software could kind of fall into that realm. Um, we all need a secure web, but not that many people know how to contribute back to it. Um, mm-hmm. it might just be that the code base is really old and not that many people remember how to contribute to it. Um, so there are a lot of reasons why that contributor growth might not happen. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, in the case of if we kind of put clubs and federations in one bucket and we put stadiums in another bucket, um, could, if you have that high contributor growth, um, it is in your best interest to think of it in terms of like, how do we get more people contributing to this project? Uh, because you, your organization is sort of like a membership organization that can absorb that. But if you're mm-hmm. a stadium, following that advice can be really bad for you because you're just going to end up inviting in a lot of these one-time kind of low-volume contributions um, mm-hmm. instead of actual like useful, I guess, um, you're just kind of creating a lot more work for that those individual maintainers because there aren't that many other people that are going to like stick around and work with them. Yeah, I think something super, super interesting about this analysis that uh, is how much it touches on people's sense of identity, whether they feel like they belong to the project that they are working on, that they are contributing to, that they are trying to make uh, code requests for. Um, and you you kind of have this brilliant uh, 
explanation of these kind of little micro societies that arise because these projects aren't just, um, you know, people's work. They, they become part of their day-to-day lives. You actually have a picture of someone with a t-shirt that says came for the language, stayed for the community. Um, what is the process uh, by which someone might become part of kind of this community of um, uh, of open source uh, software development, as opposed to just a person who pops in, says, oh, there's an issue in your code, tries to fix it, maybe not so successfully, and then leaves? Yes, there are a number of factors at work there. Um, some of them are individual to that contributor. Some of them are about the project. So we could say, for example, um, and and this kind of stuff gets maybe the most attention. Um, how how welcoming is that project to new contributors? How easy do they make it for someone to contribute? Um, there are, in a lot of ways, open source projects have become um, standardized across a lot of their workflows, but um, every project is still different. And so if uh, every project has documentation that comes with it, whether it's just a readme um, or a more extensive documentation. So if someone is coming, you know, using your project and then is like, oh, I, I want to contribute this thing and they go to your project to make a contribution and there's like no way to figure out how to do it, then they're just going to leave. It's the same as you can imagine, um, I don't know, there's a nonprofit you really want to donate to and then you go to their website and you can't find the donate button. You're like, well, I guess I'm just not going to donate. Uh, and so that, that same sort of thing can happen where a project doesn't make it that easy. Um, in terms of retention, uh, there's also a lot projects can do just to um, make it a you know non-hostile environment, let's say, to be. Um, as you can imagine, internet drama is internet drama <laughs> everywhere, including in open source. And so yeah. um, projects that are hostile to newcomers or just make it really um, unappealing to be there or contribute will also drive away contributors long term. But I did also find that um, some of this is also just depends on the uh, individual contributor's psychology. And so um, they, I, I make this distinction between active contributors and casual contributors, um, casual contributors being the ones that are kind of popping their heads in and active ones who are a little bit more like members who feel like they belong to a community or an organization. Um, and uh, there's research that suggests that active contributors come in because they're already in the mindset of wanting to join a community. Um, they're not there. They're already dis- demonstrating these pro-social attitudes early on. Hmm. They're not there because they're in this mindset of I have this you know problem or this bug that I need fixed and I just need you person to fix it. Um, that's like a very acute need, right? And that's, that's sort of like um, can characterize your first interactions where you're just like, ah, I just need someone to fix this. It's really just you're asking for customer support, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Which is very different from other contributors who might wander in and say, um, I'm going to start answering other people's questions or, you know, what's going on in here? I'm just going to mm-hmm. kind of lurk around and see mm-hmm. what the discussions are like. And then maybe I'll, I'll share my first topic of conversation um, is just a very different um, intent and, and set of goals to be entering that project with. Same so with say- like any other membership organization, I imagine. Right, right. So when you say starting my first conversation, what what does that actually look like? Are there forums where the people who are working on an open source project discuss? Do these conversations happen like in the comments of the code itself? How does this community actually form online? Yeah, gosh, everywhere. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, every project really is different in that way. Um, If your project is hosted on GitHub, it the sort of fundamental mode of conversation might be an issue tracker. Um, That's usually kind of where things start. So in addition to publishing your code for anyone to see and and make suggestions on, um, you can also 
on most projects, um, open an issue. And so technically issues started out as, um, being a way to track, um, to do's essentially. So I, we need to change this thing, but you know, we're not ready to make an actual um, proposed change, but let's just talk about that, you know, in, in this issue thread. So there's sort of like discussion threads is kind of a way to think about it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they, they used to be kind of more action oriented, I guess. And then they've become a little bit more about, uh, people can use them just to have conversations. So um, the issue tracker is kind of one place that you might see conversations happening. But yeah, I mean, as projects get bigger and more popular, um, a lot of folks will go to Stack Overflow to um, have those conversations. Um, Stack Overflow is basically like a questions and answers type forum that uh, is not related to GitHub, but um, a lot of people will use to just like have conversations about software um, or ask questions and get help on. So that's another place you might see it. Um, and a lot of projects have just old fashioned mailing lists or, um, separate, you know, help forums or think community forums, things like that. Um, a lot of these conversations happen in mailing lists and yeah, I mean, I made research for this book <laughs> a lot, um, easier, I guess, because, um, you know, you can imagine like all these conversations that would say, you know, typically happen behind closed doors if this were a software company. Um, everyone is just having them out in the open. So you can find right. all sorts of really interesting stuff in those mailing lists. Yeah. I I mean, I found this so fascinating to experience. I've experienced the phenomena you're describing of kind of these discussions, this community building in issue uh, trackers on code repositories. And, and, and maybe I just want to maybe pause and really set the stage to explain to people who have never seen this what, what this actually means, if you go on the website GitHub and say you there's a library of code, some set of code that, that someone has written or maybe a group of people have written, you can say, you know, there's a problem with this code. I'm trying to do this and it's not working. And maybe the person who's maintaining or developing that package uh, can come and say, okay, I'll try to fix that or have you tried this? But not just that person. Other people start coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh, I had that problem too. Here's my, here's the place on this forum where I asked a similar question months ago. They kind of link to that one and you can see the discussion that happened there. So far from being just a simple you know, question and answer environment, it ends up being this place where actually, like you described, people are meeting each other. Uh, the same types of people come in and answer the same types of questions. And even as a, um, uh, as an undergraduate math student on uh, Stack Overflow, when you, you know it's this phenomenal resource because any question that you might have, someone has had it before, and the community of people who have gathered to answer them um, is just truly extraordinary. I mean, it's people working for nothing more than the the joy of helping other people and the sense of obligation to their community. It, would you say that that's accurate in terms of the people who join these communities? Is there a reputational status to be gained by being more helpful in a community like that? Or is it really just a felt sense of obligation to this group of people and to help people who are, you know, your fellow code developers or mathematicians or whoever it might be using these online services? Definitely. I mean, there are different motivations for everyone. Um, I wouldn't say there's just, you know, one overarching thing, um, for stack overflow, because there is, they sort of have their own reputational system, um, where you can become like a top answerer if you're answering lots of questions. And some people get very excited about that. Um, if you kind of dig into one of the things I did, um, as I was doing research for this book was looking at 
who's most active on um, the GitHub repository for a given project. Um, so that might be like, you know, how many people are actually like actively developing the project and who are the most active developers. Um, then you might look at the issue tracker and say, all right, who are the most active people answering questions on the issues? And then you might go to Stack Overflow and say, well, who are the people that are most active um, answering questions related to this project? And like, it's surprising. Those are like often like different groups of people. Um, hmm. Someone who might be the main or you know core developer of an open source project might never look at the questions and answers and someone else might kind of jump in because they like doing that kind of stuff. And right. so, yeah, I do think there's, um, there are definitely people that get involved with this stuff just because they like doing it. And you often see that kind of community moderator or um, just like a generally helpful person emerge on an open source project that is often distinct from say like the lead developer or author of the project. Um, but then, yeah, I mean, things like Stack Overflow, you might also see some of those top answers, especially for really popular projects. Um, they might also have created like books or educational material on this stuff. And they're starting to like right. brand themselves as like, I'm an expert huh. in this topic. And so, um, that's absolutely a thing where I'd say, you know, there is a reputational reward involved there of just being like known as a great instructor or, yeah. um, just knowledgeable person on this topic. What would you say is the role of trust in kind of the the development of open source projects? You mentioned that people can submit uh, pull requests um, to a project. So if they want to submit a correction, there, there could be all these people are trying to submit corrections. And it's a lot of work on the part of the maintainers to figure out which corrections to their code that they want to actually accept. And so there's kind of, you know, informal systems of connection and trust that arise to um, make streamline people's ability to decide what is worth accepting and not. So how, how does that trust build up? And is that a part of this ecosystem, would you say? Yeah. And it's one that is not immediately visible just from looking at GitHub without any context, which I find really interesting. Um, so, for example, you can imagine... Um, I think about like ecosystems in open source and those ecosystems often just for sake of simplicity break down to um, either like really major projects that have a lot of like sub projects organized um, underneath it or um, programming languages where uh, you can say like we have the JavaScript ecosystem or the Python ecosystem and those are both programming languages. Um, and so, you know, any one ecosystem might have you know, countless different number of smaller projects associated with it, but there's still like a loose affiliation or understanding of, oh, we all kind of work in the same field. Um, maybe like an analogy for this would be um, uh, professor, history professors where they, even if you work at different universities, you, you get to know the other history professors in your field or whatever your field of study is. Um, and so there's a similar thing that happens with developers where like you may have never contributed to my specific project, but like, I know you're a JavaScript developer. I know I've seen you around. And so, um, if that person comes in on the project and says like, you know, I have a suggestion or like, here's a contribution or something. Um, and that person is like really widely known in the ecosystem as like a celebrity developer, then, um, much more likely that, uh, that right. contribution is going to get reviewed versus someone who's just kind of randomly coming in. And that's the thing. Like, I mean, you can make a contribution, but there's no guarantee that anyone is ever going to review your contribution. Mm. Um, if, and if they don't know you already, or you're just kind of seem like this really random person and your question isn't that well formulated or your contribution is mm. not that well formulated, like they might just totally ignore you. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it can work in both directions too. Like if you're kind of this notorious person that no one wants to talk to, like that can also kind of hurt you. Um, but GitHub really, uh, 
I'd say like mostly only conceives of developers and their contributions um, based on a specific project. And they sort of like characterize each um, project as its own community. But I think the reality is that a lot of these projects, especially the much smaller ones, um, Mm -hmm. there's probably some like broader community and a lot of interchange happening between them. So aside from the benefits of uh, an online community, solving people's problems, we haven't really talked about how the people involved in these projects are actually being compensated uh, financially or otherwise. GitHub is not a paid organization, so uh, that is a paying organization. Uh, so when you write code onla- online and post it for anyone to access, no one is necessarily paying you. So how are, generally speaking, the maintainers of software being paid? Gosh, well, that was the question that kind of got me <laughs> first most interested in this space. Yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe we should I should have even mentioned that in the beginning. Um, the crazy thing about all of this open source infrastructure that, which, you know, by now I've kind of painted this picture of um, everyone is relying upon it, like every software app that you use, but also just essential services like, you know, applying for chubs, um, managing your government software, everything that you do online is reliant upon it. Um, But most developers are not getting directly paid to write and maintain this code. Um, A lot. And to understand, like, I guess why that's true is um, to understand the highly distributed nature of open source infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So um, any one software application, let's say, can draw from hundreds or thousands of open source projects. And you might have hundreds or thousands of different authors of each of those projects. You're kind of just grabbing whatever you find on the Internet and putting it in. Um, And so it's really hard to think about, okay, like I'm, you know, a bank that is relying on this software, but I'm using like so many different projects. Like it's, there isn't really one clear, you know, place to just pay. And then if you kind of look at any one specific project, um, you know, you again might have just a few developers, you might have hundreds of developers working on that project. So like, who even are you Mm -hmm. trying to pay? It's supposed to be this just like public thing that everyone does. Um, that can be okay. Uh, I don't think that every open source developer needs to get paid for their work. And I think most developers would also say that. Um, but it can definitely lead to conflicts when like maintaining code can be a lot of work. Uh, it's different from, let's say, publishing a book where you publish the book and then like hopefully no one bothers you about it for a while until maybe <laughs> maybe you're asked to do another a second edition of it or an update. Right. Um, but like the book is done. Like you, you're not being asked to change it literally every minute of your life. Uh, but yeah. that, with code, like code continues to change. Um, things continue to break. People continue to need things. So just, you know, you publish it once, but you're not done with it. You have to continue to maintain mm-hmm. that into perpetuity. And mm-hmm. um, if that code finds a large user base, then suddenly this thing that you kind of maybe like, you know, wrote over the weekend and published and is now being used by like fortune 100 companies that are asking yeah. you to like do things for them. It's just sort of jarring. You're like, well, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I wasn't really thinking about maintaining it. Um, and uh, all open source code has this aspect to it um, where they, people say that you can fork the code, which meaning that, you know, if, if I'm not going to maintain it, you can always download the code and take it with you somewhere. But I found like the reality of that is um, yes. Like a company can theoretically, download the code and just maintain it themselves. And that does happen a lot. Um, but there's a lot of code that just like 
because we are so inextricably linked at this point with so many different dependencies to different types of projects, um, it's actually pretty hard to just sort of like pull out a slice of that and um, do it on your own uh, for a number of for a number of reasons. So, um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah so, sorry, I got lost in that. But um, yeah, That's how do right. how do how do developers get paid? Kind of just coming back to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, some some developers do have you know a full time job at a, a software company, and they have time allocated where it's understood they can you know work on open source projects, and so they sort of like indirectly uh, pay for their time that way. Um, for some of like some of the really big and heavily relied upon um, open source projects there are people that just get paid full-time to work on those things. Um, sometimes, you know, if like a company has open sourced a project that they really care a lot about, they can just like direct some of their paid engineers to work on it full-time. So there are arrangements like that, but uh, it, I mean, open source has created trillions of dollars of value for our global economy. And I would say mm. open source developers themselves have captured the smallest, smallest fraction of slice of that. Um, right. And so I think a lot of the conversation that is happening more recently, let's say in the past five years or so, has been around, um, you know, if someone is maintaining a critical piece of infrastructure, like, it, are there ways that we can find to sponsor them or whether it's a company sponsoring them or them um, raising money through their own sponsorships mm -hmm. to, uh, yeah, just like find a way to um, allow them to work on it more full time than they are right now. Yeah, as I was finishing the book and I guess over the past 24 hours or so, I couldn't help but think, you know, every time I use my phone or I use my computer, maybe people have a sense that if they take out their phone, maybe they have a, a phone built by Google. That phone obviously has an immense amount of software built into it, uh, Android operating system. You would kind of think intuitively that the people writing that software are employees of Google, who then when you buy the phone, they get some percentage of the profits in the form of their salary. But in reality, that Android software, and indeed, like you say, every really piece of software on every web page, every mobile app is relying on hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of little packages, little libraries, little pieces of code that are so unbelievably distributed, like you said, um, across all of these different projects. And so even, you know, um, so I'm in the process of uh, making my own website, even just single commands that I write are calling to, you know, dozens or hundreds of other things happening behind the scenes that I can hardly understand. And it's this kind of incredible recognition that, you know, my one line of code represents the outstanding work of hundreds or thousands of people who are barely capturing a fraction of the value um, of the the profits that could be generated by not what I'm building, but what all of the biggest technology companies in the world uh, have built. So it's really quite uh, quite the thing to wrap your head around. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the, the upside of all of this, right? Is that, um, open source infrastructure has created enormous efficiencies for everyone so that, I mean, I had the same experience as an amateur software developer, um, well before I ever really understood anything about open source, but you know, it was just like, wow, is it that easy to generate a new software application by literally typing rails new or whatever into my <laughs> right, right, command right. line. And then suddenly you see this like, you know, voluminous output in, uh, on your screen. And that's, uh, 
pulling in all these different uh, software projects from like all these other developers. And so um, it is just so much easier now to write software than it was before because your one line of code represents, let's say, you know, tens of thousands of lines of code that someone else wrote and that you can just kind of reuse right. efficiently in your own software. It's incredible. Okay. And so it, would you say that there is currently an issue in terms of uh, compensation for a lot of open source developers and what are kind of the changes that are happening to ensure that people, you know, can actually productively maintain these packages while feeling like they're being suitably rewarded for it? I think it's getting better. Um, Like other problems in the world, I don't expect there will be a moment where suddenly everything is, you know, solved and and we're done with it. Um, I do feel like there's a lot more awareness and the quality of conversations that I have now is much higher than when I was first starting to look into this, like I said, you know, five years ago. And like, I was still having this debate with so many people about like people saying that, well, open source is a volunteer run effort. The whole point is that it's participatory and distributed to people all around the world. They don't want to get paid. Um, you're just sort of like poisoning this concept. Um, and so I don't feel like I hear that as often anymore. I think like everyone on every side of of that conversation has kind of come around to, okay, like (laughs) we can't ignore the reality that sometimes this, you know, participatory volunteer collaborative effort is actually just falling on the hands of a few people. Um, we can just like see that in the numbers. And, um, and so it's been really wonderful to see, um, people just like tackling this issue on all sides, whether it's um, more education and awareness or um, support and community efforts to um, help maintainers feel supported. Um, And then just like fundraising campaigns and um, GitHub itself, I think maybe like one of the more validating um, moments is uh, last year GitHub release uh, GitHub sponsors, which is a a sub product of of theirs that um, allows developers to accept financial sponsorships on their website, um, hmm. uh, meaning on GitHub uh, right. directly through, through GitHub. So if you're the maintainer of a popular project, you can um, make yourself available for sponsorship and um, huh. other developers, when they come across your stuff, can say, oh, I really love using this person's stuff. I'm going to start uh, sponsoring and supporting them every every month. Um, and so I think stuff like that, it's partly like, I think that has unlocked a lot of financial opportunity for um, mm-hmm. open source developers who can now work on this stuff full-time or part-time. Um, but then it also just, I think, sends a really important signal that GitHub is taking this seriously. And um, just the fact of that, that existing is bringing so much more awareness to the conversation. Another thing that happened just recently, a couple of years ago, was that GitHub was acquired by Microsoft. Uh, would, is this some kind of coming full circle, uh, given the anecdote that you relate about Bill Gates uh, from, you know, 25 years ago, talking about how someone has to get paid for the software? What does that that mean, that kind of partnership in terms of the future of open source? Yeah, gosh, um, it was funny when that acquisition happened because I did I, I, there. It felt like this irony for folks that had um been in software for a really long time of remembering how hostile um, Microsoft had historically been to the concept of open source and um, and then now seeing GitHub, which is like the open source platform uh, getting acquired by Microsoft was just sort of this interesting moment. Um, although what really did stand out to me around the time of the acquisition was that it didn't get as much pushback as one might have expected. Um, there's definitely a contingent of people that were, you know, upset about it and continue to be upset or to say, you know, like, this is the whole thing about like, why are we relying on GitHub when it's just going to get acquired by Microsoft? Um, but I saw in a lot of developers, um, 
an openness to this change of like, great, like <laughs> GitHub should have a big company um, backing it. And um, with all the resources that a company like Microsoft can provide, that's actually a really good thing. And I get into this more in the book, but like to me, that kind of marks this um, cultural shift that has happened from early open source days to modern open source now, where today's open source developers are, the, the, you know, the rising open source developers are mostly just concerned about their workflows and about um, efficiency and um, just want to build great software with great tools and um, seeing Microsoft as a positive acquisition as a positive thing, because it just will help arm GitHub with more resources to do that, um, which is just a really different position from, I guess, if you are like really devoted to, let's say this like ideological concept of um, free software or open source, I can see why it would be upsetting or um, just really against your values. But the fact that that is not the prevalent conversation now suggests to me that something has certainly changed. So just wrapping things up here, I'd like to ask one final question that ties things back to the beginning when you were speaking about the anthropological approach that you took to writing this book. You said you were inspired by people like Jane Jacobs, who didn't want to theorize about cities. You wanted to just step outside and write about what a city is looking at it. So that was kind of the approach you took, uh, spending time with developers and maintainers of open source software, what was your process like for speaking with and getting to know and embedding yourself in that community? It was a lot of trust building in the beginning. Um, I didn't have a background in open source. Um, I had, you know, tinkered around with software myself. I'd never been paid to professionally as a software developer, um, but I, you know, been around it enough to kind of generally get what was going on, but not really. Um, and so it was actually interesting, like early on, cause I felt like the advice I was getting from a lot of people was, well, you should become an open source contributor yourself, or you should get really involved with a specific project before you try to do something this, cause you just like, frankly, don't have any credibility. Um, which I think actually like, I think just like discounts the value of research and, hmm. um, having people to kind of chronicle the stories of what is happening. Um, mm -hmm. to me, it sort of represented this. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a, a belief that is a little bit more prevalent in tech or something of like, you need to jump into the solutions instead of like trying to understand the why and just writing about right. it. And so, uh, <laughs> despite my like sort of fear about not having that credibility, I really, the, the one thing I tried to do was just like not position myself as an expert when I was talking to open source developers. I was just like, I am trying mm -hmm. to understand this space and this topic. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a lot of just cold emailing early on and trying to be thoughtful and um, show that I was listening and that, um, you know, hopefully I was going to be able to do justice to kind of the stories I was telling and um, building trust with some of those developers who would then help vouch for me for with other developers. And it kind of just grew like that. Once I joined GitHub to like work there full time, I think uh, that gave me a little bit more confidence to say, okay, like now I'm like kind of on the inside and I am seeing a lot of things happening across different projects. And now I feel a little bit more confident expressing my views. But I remember it was kind of like there was a point where I had to like remind myself that, okay, you, at this point, you've been looking at this topic for, you know, whatever it was like a year or two years at, at, at that point. And um, it's okay to like express your opinion. <laughs> you don't mm -hmm. have to just mm -hmm. continue to kind of lean back. Um, I mean, you you picked up on this style in the book, and it's true of really everything that I write, where I, I rely heavily on anecdotes from um, developers themselves and try to let them just speak in their own words, because I really do kind of want to be like 
I want to provide just enough context and synthesis for people to understand those stories and what they mean. But I really don't want to be the person who's like, well, I think it's this because I mean, what do I know? I don't. <laughs> um, and instead sort of step back and let those stories really shine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, my process was just a lot, <laughs> so many conversations everywhere I could, um, in my email inbox, uh, at GitHub, uh, I early on did a lot of, um, blogging and I had a newsletter that I was keeping, uh, just to sort of like send out these beacons of like, I am a person who's really interested in this topic and please talk to me about it. And that, uh, just brought in a lot of inbound um, and so, yeah, I mean, for me, like the research process was really just all about being as deeply immersed as I could while still also respecting that I might be among them, but I am not of them. And uh, I, I never really want to, you know, I don't want to pretend that I'm an open source developer or that I know something that they don't, but I can just sort of maybe like aggregate and amplify and reflect the stories that are kind of coming to me. Yeah, fantastic. Well, the stories are fantastic. The quotes that you have in the book are really excellent. The way you kind of frame the story uh, is 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 frankly just fun, and it's cool to kind of spend this time it, feeling as the reader like you're embedded in this universe. That for those of us that don't work in software, it, it is definitely fairly foreign. Uh, in closing, is there anything that you'd like to add uh, about your process of writing the book, about open source, or uh, anything that we've spoken about today? No, thank you. This is just a really great opportunity to have a conversation. Well, yeah, thank you so much as well. The book is called Working in Public, and I would really recommend it to anyone interested in any of the topics we've discussed in this New Books Network interview. Thank you so much, Nadia Iqbal. 